All right, are you ready? Let's open with prayer and we'll dive in. Our Father, as we were just adoring you through song, thank you so much that you're rich in love, that you're slow to anger, that you are merciful. Thank you so much for your amazing grace that could save a wretch like us. Thank you that there's no sin so great that it can't be forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus. And thank you that that gift is free. We can't work our way to heaven, but because you've made promises, Lord, we can, we can count on it. Your promises are good, and you always make good on your word. So Father, we pray that you'd help us now as we look at Obadiah Lord, let us see that aspect of your character, your faithfulness, that you are a promise-keeping God. And Lord, make that practical in our lives, we pray. Help us to see that because you are faithful, because you are trustworthy, we then can put our trust in you. Father, I pray that you would make this very, very clear to us this evening through the truth of your word and through the, through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, look at the book of Obadiah. Look at Obadiah. We're going to read verses 15 through 21. Remember, the first half of the book is all about um, this aspect of judgment for Esau. Judgment for Esau. But then we see in verses 15 through 21... Because of Esau's mistreatment of their brother Jacob, remember this happened when Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah. When they did that, Edom participated in that destruction. They took some captive. They mistreated the refugees. They killed them. They pillaged the cities. They stole all sorts of treasures. And because God made a promise to Abraham way back, 1,500 years earlier almost, God said, Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. But those who mistreat you, I will curse. They will, they will see justice and judgment. Because God made that promise to Abraham, Esau, through his mistreatment of God's chosen people, descendants of Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, Edom aligned themselves for the judgment and just wrath of God. But... While it's bad news for Edom, we put ourselves in the shoes of the ancient Israeli who's in exile. They're outside of their land. They've been uprooted, taken to a strange foreign land where they speak language that you don't know and where they have customs that are unfamiliar and it's hard. But the ancient Israeli would hear this message that God has a plan. There is coming a day of judgment for Edom, but there's also coming a day of justice for Jacob. A day when Jacob will be restored. That's what we get in verses 15 through 21. So let's read it. If you've got your Bible, look with me. Verse 15 is the hinge verse. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, or upon all the nations. As you have done, it will be done unto you. Your reward will return upon your own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen, the nations, drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. Remember, verses 15 and 16, 
Esau is experiencing God's judgment, and they become an example of how all the nations will receive justice for their actions. As they have done, so it will be done unto them. That's what that principle we talked about, it's called retributive justice. Punishment that is um, similar and an equal quality and quantity to the sin that they committed. Remember that principle? So Edom is a little picture of the judgment that's coming for all the nations. Then verse 17. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. Now the verses we're looking at tonight. Verse 19, And they of the south, or of the Negev, shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain, the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim, and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath. And the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. And saviors shall come upon Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That, verse 21, that's what we'll deal with next week, but that's, that's really the key verse of the entire book of Obadiah, is it's leading up to this great highlight that the kingdom is going to be the Lord's. Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, is the one true king, and he will establish his reign over all. But... Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's work on 19 and 20 tonight. Has anybody ever been over to the promised land, the land of Israel before? Anybody visited there? Me either. Hopefully someday. Anybody want to go to Israel and visit there? Yeah. Okay, me too. I'm with you. I think it'd be a really neat trip. Just to walk the same area of dirt that the Savior walked and that these patriarchs were on. Let's do it. Next week? Everybody got your passports? There you go. <laughs> All right, so, so here's, here's why I asked you that. Sometimes for me, it's hard to put my shoe, myself in the shoes of the people in the story of the Bible because I've never been there. Like, we're removed from these times by 2,500 years, right? It was 586 B.C. when the circumstances that Obadiah describes went down, when Jerusalem was destroyed. That's over 2,500 years ago. So not only do we have a gap of time, we also have a gap of culture. We are a Western culture, and this is an ancient Near Eastern culture. It's a lot different than the way that we think and the way that we live, if you haven't noticed. Even just go over and look at, the, look at Middle Eastern culture today. It's a lot different than the way that we live, isn't it? But not only do we have a gap of time, a gap of culture. We have a gap of language, obviously. It was written originally in ancient Hebrew. But we also have a gap of geography. Now, somebody help us. What is geography? Miss Brenda, you look pumped to tell us. No child likes it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I thought... That's right. It's the study of the land. Is that what you were going to say, Adrian? You did look actually excited. Do you like geography, Adrian? Yeah. 
Does anyone like geography? Let's. Oh, okay. Miss B, you need some of these young people in your class to enjoy geography with you. Maybe that's why they like geography now. So geography, real, we're removed from the Bible lands. He's describing places like Gilead and Sepharad and Zarephath. Have you ever been there? Have you even ever seen a picture of some of these places? Yeah, me either. So that's what I want to do tonight is try to help us understand because how many of you know where Elko is? Okay, yes, we've got Elko. How many of you know where Lamoille is? Okay, we've got that. How many of you know where Jigs is? Okay, yep, that's that way. Um, how many of you know where Winnemucca is? Yeah, Reno, Salt Lake, Wendover, Wells, Twin Falls, Boise. See, you guys are really good at geography. This is our geography, but it's a challenge to understand what the biblical authors are saying without understanding the geography in which they say it. Because if I just come up here and I say, guys, hey, I'm going on a trip to Zarephath. Do you know where that is? Like, could you show us that on a map? Maybe. Maybe. Nathan? If I have flat out honest with you, I didn't even know some of those places were real places until you started screaming their names at me. <laughs> <laughs> where are those places exactly? I've never traveled through them, right? All right, are you ready? Are you ready? Let's, let's bring our focus back to the scripture and maximize the time we have, okay? All right, you ready? Okay, let's do this. So he starts out in verse 19. He starts out in verse 19. He says, And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain the Philistines. All right, let's pause there. These go in pairs. In verse 19, we've got this pair. The south will possess the mount of Esau. They of the plain the Philistines. That's our first set. Here's the big idea that we're seeing tonight. And hopefully you'll see this as we walk through the text, is God is a promise-keeping God. When God makes a promise, he doesn't renege on his promise. He doesn't go back on his word. He's always faithful. God has never broken a promise, and he never will. Now, I'm not naive enough to think. We've all probably had someone break a promise to us. I have. That's part of our human condition. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. But God's not like that. When God makes a promise, he always makes good on his word. Okay, so starting out, the south, or some of your translations might say the Negev. Here's this map. Hopefully you can see it. Can you all see that a little bit? I know it's a little small. Forgive me for that. But we've got, this is a lot bigger up there. I have contacts in, so that's good. Okay, so let me grab my scribbly here. And we're going to go red. There's the Negev. You see that? So this is the land of Israel all through here. This is the land of Israel. And Jerusalem's actually underneath that lower point of that line. But down where I just circled, this is also part of the land of Israel. Now it's called the Negev. And does anyone know what the Negev is? You ever heard of that? The Negev is a desert, and it is often referred to as the Southland because it's the south of Israel. Miss B? How do they make like, water in the 
How did they make water? No, yeah, how did the water, how have so much water near that area and still it ends up being a river? Yeah, that's a good question. It must have to do with the weather patterns. It must. Because this, this lake right here is the Dead Sea. And so it has no potable water. That's, that's a sea of death. So anything south of that, there's no outflow of it. So there's no good water once you leave south from the Dead Sea. So the Negev, it's in bad shape. It's a desert wasteland. Let me show you a picture of it. That's what the Negev looks like. Yeah, right? See, that's my point. Even though we have never been to Israel, there's actually a lot of similarities to some of our geography. We've seen stuff like this. Okay, this is, this is the Negev. Now, let me tell you. Um, you guys, I like literature. I've made that pretty apparent to you. Mia? I looked it up in a desert. It's like if you're looking up precipitation, so there just needs to be more rain. Truth. There you go. Okay, so... So if you're with me, follow, me, follow with me. Let's, let's try to stay focused here, guys. Otherwise, we're never going to make it through all this. We've got a lot of maps to see. Okay, so our literary word for the night, a synecdoche. Have you ever heard of that? Synecdoche. That sounds like an insect. Okay, a simple way to describe it is it's a container for contents. So if someone says, hey, I raided the fridge last night, you know what I mean? Does that mean that they went and they took the fridge? No, it doesn't mean that. Does it mean they went and they grabbed the refrigerator and they ate it? No, it's a metaphor. The fridge is a synecdoche for what's inside of it. When they say, I raided the fridge, they mean I went and I found the milk. I found the cookies. I found whatever. I found your meatloaf. There you go, your meatloaf. All right, stay focused, guys. So a synecdoche means it's referring to what's inside of it by the name of what it is. So the fridge is a container for the food. That's what we really care about, not the fridge. The Negev is a synecdoche for the people who live in the Southland. So he says, the Negev, these people who live in this Southland, will possess the Mount of Esau. Now, we have talked a little bit about the Mount of Esau, where that's at. That's over... That's over here. Now, let's see if we can draw a little river. We've got a river that runs down through here. This is called the Jordan River. The Jordan River. So, Edom, which is the Mount of Esau, is over here on the... What side is that? On the... What direction? East. On the east side of the Jordan River. Edom's over there. Now we have, up here, is the Negev. So he says, the people of the Negev will possess... The Mount of Esau. Think about this. Where are the people Obadiah is writing about? These people of Israel who once lived in the Negev. Where do they live right now? No. After 586 BC, what happened to them? Do you remember? That's right, John. They live in Babylon. Let me see if I can find a map. Here we go. Um, over here in this area is where they live. Here's Assyria, and Babylon was down here. Okay, So they don't live anywhere near this Mount of Esau. But what Obadiah is saying is, there's coming a day when the people of the Negev are going to possess this Mount of Esau. Okay, let's look at the next one. 
He says, they of the plain, the Philistines. They of the plain, the Philistines. What is this talking about, the plain? Uh, another, uh, the Hebrew word for it is Shephelah, and sometimes it's called the Shephelah. Nathan? Isn't a plain a giant grassy area? Okay, it is. That is what we picture as a plain. Oh, I forgot to show you this. The Mount of Esau. This is what we're picturing. The mountainous heartland of Edom. That's what the people of the Negev are going to possess. This, these rocky fortresses. Jonathan, you had your hand up? Okay. All right, so here's another map of the land of Israel. Okay, so let's go yellow. So we have over here is the coastal plain. The, this is a luscious land. It's down toward the coast. They get the, they get the wind off of the Mediterranean Sea. Remember, try to zoom out. Here's the Mediterranean Sea, and this here is the land of Israel that we're talking about. Okay, so when we zoom that picture back in, here's the Mediterranean Sea out here. Okay, so it's a very good climate. Here's the coastal plain. Right here is the Shephelah. The best way I can describe it to us is the foothills. So we have the Ruby Mountains. Those are our real mountains. But if you've ever noticed, there are smaller mountains all around the Rubies. Have you noticed that? What do we call those? Foothills or Elko Hills. We call, they're the foothills. The Shephelah is the foothills of Israel. The Shephelah is the foothills of Israel. And the Shephelah really served, remember back to the time of the Philistines, because that's where they're going to possess. The people of the plain or the Shephelah will possess the Philistines. Do we have any famous Philistines you can think of? Goliath. Oh yeah, Goliath. Now, Goliath wasn't descended from the Philistines. He was a mercenary, meaning a hired warrior. But he fought for the Philistines. The Philistines, they lived over here in the coastal plains. And they were Israel's number one enemy back in the times of the United Monarchy. Saul, David, and then Solomon. Now, they were constantly warring because the people of Israel lived up here in the hill country of Judah. This was the large concentration of the population back then. So there was always this battle over whether who would control the Shephelah. Are you following me with that? So the Philistines sometimes would have control, and then Israel would have control. But here's what he's saying. He's saying the people of the Shephelah are going to possess the Philistines, the coastal plain. What is rightfully their land, these Israelites who lived in the Shephelah, now they're going to take over and control their rightful land. Are you following me so far? All right, now the second couplet, end of verse 19. And they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. So the fields of Ephraim. This uh, refers to the tribal territory that was dominated by, um, by Ephraim, this, this central ridge. So let me find a good... Oh, I, for, I keep forgetting to show you a picture to try to help us picture this. This is the Shephelah. This is what's known as the Lachish Valley. And let me see. I can maybe show that to you. Okay. Here's the Lachish Valley, if you care. That's the Lachish Valley in the Shephelah. And that's where that picture is taken. So this is the Shephelah, the foothills. Isn't that pretty cool? I mean, we can picture this. There's some places in Nevada that look a little bit like this, right? Like Cowboys Rest. Lovelock. Lovelock. 
There you go. Okay, so now we have the fields of Ephraim. They will possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. So this field of Ephraim and then the fields of Samaria, this is the area around the capital city of, remember, we had the divided monarchy after Solomon. We had Jeroboam reigning the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. Okay, so if you're following along, this was all referred to as Ephraim at times because they were kind of the ruling tribe in the northern kingdom. And do you remember, what was the capital city of Israel, the northern kingdom? Jerusalem was the, the capital city of Judah and of the united monarchy. Samaria. Do you remember that? Let me... Sorry, I can't see it on my little screen. Oh, I can't even read that. Can you guys read that? Oh, it's so small. Well, you guys, I can't even see good enough to... It is. I can't see it good enough to... No. I can't zoom in on this one. Here's Samaria. This one will show it. Right where that yellow X is. That's Samaria. Okay? So that's your capital city. Right about where Mr. Peter was saying. Right underneath Israel. We just can't read it on this map. So there's Samaria. So he says, they will possess the fields of Ephraim and of Samaria. So here's the picture that we get. Right now, the northern kingdom of Israel, they were exiled in 722 B.C., by the kingdom, the empire of Assyria. But they were not like how Babylon took captive the, Ju the Judeans off to Babylon. The Assyrians scattered them across the entire empire, so much so that, humanly speaking, the nation of Israel, that northern kingdom, was unrecoverable. There was no chance they would ever be reunified as a nation. But here's the hope that Obadiah, speaking on behalf of the Lord, is giving. Even these scattered Israelites from the northern kingdom who think they'll never be a nation again, God is going to bring them back and their rightful possession of Ephraim and of Samaria, they're going to possess it. That's cool. And then he says, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Okay, so here's our tribal allotments. Remember, Israel, the father, had 12 sons. Here's where they got their land allotments. Here's Benjamin right here. See Benjamin? So that's Benjamin's allotment. He's on the what side of the Jordan River? That's right. He's on the west side of the Jordan River. Now, what does it say Benjamin is going to possess? End of verse 19. Gilead. So Benjamin is going to possess Gilead, on the east side of the Jordan River. Okay. All right, now pause. Have you noticed, let's see if we can zoom out here and get just a bird's eye view. He starts off, he says, those of the south, the Negev, are going to possess whom? The Mount of Esau. Remember that? So what direction do they move to possess the Mount of Esau? Exactly. 
the east. Um, sorry, my notes. I'm miss. I'm missing a spot here. Let me find where I'm looking for. Oh, it's because it's out of order. There we go. So this southern border, they're going to possess. Let's go back to the Edom map so I can show you what I'm thinking of. Here's Edom. So it's actually a southern movement. They're going east of the Jordan River, but they're moving from here and they're possessing Edom to the south. So we get a southern movement. Then he says, those of the plain, the Philistines. So let's choose another color. Here's the plain. Can you see that green? They're moving west to possess the coastal plain of the Philistines. Then let's go back to that bigger map so we can get a bird's eye view. So we had the Negev is possessing Mount Esau. Look at all those scribbles. The Shephelah will possess the Philistines, a westward movement. Then we have, they will possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. So this gives us a northward movement. Then, what are we missing? East. Benjamin is going to possess Gilead. So, here's essentially what Obadiah is doing. If, if the map's not helping you, I'm sorry. But what Obadiah just did was he addressed all four compass directions. He's saying Israel is going to expand its territory. It's going to go from little puny nation to big. They're going to move south, they're going to move east, they're going to move west, and they're going to move north. Okay, are you following that so far? Okay, let's grab verse 20, and then we'll make the application. He says, in the captivity of this host, the captivity of this host of the children of Israel will possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath. Okay, and let me find my Zarephath map. Up here, way in the north, that's Zarephath. Nathan? No, like picture a circle. Yep, their area of influence is gonna expand um, more like a circle. Yes. So I was wondering if they were like picking out all the people who would like destroy, target them over time. Like, That's exactly the picture that we're getting. Yeah. Is these enemies that have mistreated God's chosen people? They are now being defeated, and God's people are expanding back to the territory they were promised. So he says. The captivity of this host of the children of Israel will possess that of the Canaanites, even under Zarephath. Now remember, all of this was called the land of Canaan. Back, think Abraham's time, this was the land of Canaan. And so what he says is, this captivity of the host of the children of Israel. Now was Israel the northern or the southern kingdom? Northern. And they've been in exile for a long time now. And they're scattered. They have no hope of return. And what Obadiah says is, they are going to possess all of this territory of Canaan, even north to Zarephath. Now, Zarephath was never owned by Israel. They never owned that far north. This was in um, a land called Phoenicia. Um, let's see if we can find a map with that. We might just, you might just have to take my word for it. Oh, there it is. Um, here's Phoenicia with Zarephath up here. So this land of Phoenicia, these were seafaring people. If you've heard of the nation or the city-states of Tyre and Sidon, remember those? That's this place. Tyre is just a little south of it, and, si and Sidon is about eight miles north of it. Jonathan? Um, is that where the, uh, the rubber thing that goes around the rim of your car? 
Tire. I like. I get it. I get it. Okay, and then this captivity, end of verse 20, the captivity of Jerusalem, now we're referring to this southern kingdom of Judah. These people from Judah who are captive in Babylon right now. He says the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad. Now, they don't know what Sepharad is. People have made many suggestions like Spain and some other random ones. But what is most likely is that it refers to something in Babylon where the Judeans are in captivity. Suffice that to say for now, we could talk more about it later if you're really interested in Sepharad. But the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. He goes back to talking about the Negev. He says they will possess the cities of the south. All of these areas, these habitations down in the Negev, they're going to repossess those. Because remember, Esau who is down here, has started to creep up and take Israelite territory in the Negev because they're south of Israel. So he's saying in Judah, this captivity of Jerusalem is going to regain all this territory in the Negev that was stolen from them. Are you following along? All right, we made it through 19 and 20. Now take your Bibles and go back to Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to make application. Oh, that was fun. So how many of you like geography now? Oh, good. Okay. Still, same people. Get the ball in the end zone. That's right. I'm with you now. So, I'm slow. Forgive me. It took me a second. <laughs> All right. Genesis 15. You guys, this is, this is a key passage when we're thinking about what's called the Abrahamic Covenant. Remember, the Abrahamic Covenant, three promises. What were they? Land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. God says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you many descendants. That's the seed. And I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So, specifically, end of Genesis 15 is giving us the land boundaries that God has promised to his people Israel through Abraham. Let's read it. Genesis 15 Verse 17, and it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. This is God is making a covenant. Verse 18, in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, unto your seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he's going to list off all the nations who currently live there. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Boy, that's a lot of nations that live there right now. And that's all in this land that we know as the land of Canaan. But did you notice these enormous geographical boundaries? Where's the river of Egypt? All the way down here. This is the Nile River. That's the river of Egypt. Where's the river Euphrates? Way up here, there's Euphrates. So, how much do these people of Israel, how much land is rightfully theirs? Wow, that's a lot of land. 
All of this land is Israel's. Ezekiel? All of that. Inside of those rivers, down to the Red Sea, and all the way up here. Is it inside the lines? All of that land belongs rightfully to God's chosen people of Israel. Now realize, Israel has never possessed such an enormous territory like God promised. They always had a small territory right up here, a little bit sometimes on the eastern side of Jordan, but primarily on that western side of the Jordan River. Now realize... That promise God made to Israel, he's not going to forsake that promise, that covenant he made with Abram. There will be a day when God will grant all this land to his chosen people of Israel. And that's what Obadiah is predicting. That's still future to us. And I think that's really cool. When we understand God's track record of prophecy, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy fulfilled, God keeps this promise to Israel, he will but let's make it practical to us. As we see all these random territories, even if you don't like geography, here's what's neat about this, is to understand that just as God promised Zarephath and Canaan and all of these areas to Israel, God has made promises to us as well. And I want to just think about one promise. It's a verse that many of us know, John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world, you realize God has promised you. He loves you. Your life has meaning. It has purpose. You are valuable beyond anything that you could even ever fathom. God loves you and he made you in his image as a special creation. And you're valuable to God. So much so, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God doesn't just love you and say he loves you. He's acted on it. He showed it by giving his own son, Jesus, to die for our sins. And he rose from the dead victorious over death and the grave. So John 3.16 ends by saying that whosoever believes in him, on Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again, whoever believes on him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. God has promises for us, too, that he loves you, that he's made a way for your sins to be forgiven, and not just promises for today, but also for our future, everlasting life, an eternal inheritance with Christ. It's incredible. And God keeps those promises, too. Just as he, kept, as he will keep these promises with specificity that Israel will own all this land, God keeps his promises of love, salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life to us. That is really neat. And so what Obadiah does for us is he highlights the faithfulness of God, that he keeps his promises. Isn't that beautiful? I love it. In the midst of all this judgment and the bad news, God highlights the good news, that all who take refuge in Christ are safe. That's beautiful. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray, and then I just have one thing.